0: Let me just start real quick. Uh, if you, we're gonna, you're gonna need a Bible today. I don't have all the scr- verses on the screen. Um, I, I really want to build in us a, a practice of carrying our Bibles to church. I've, I've enabled you for a long time and I'll probably continue to enable you so that people who are not familiar with the Bible can read the verses. But it's important that you see these things in God's Word and are able to take them. Just become familiar with your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, I would encourage you, it's on page 859 in the, and the Bible's in the chairs. If you don't have your own Bible, take that with you. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. The, the Word of God works. It's powerful. It accomplishes the purposes of God, and, and we would encourage you to read it and study it. If you're following on a device, I'd encourage you to download the YouVersion app and follow us on our live event. You'll have the notes. You'll be able to take notes. You'll be able to refer to them later, uh, all of that. And so anyway, just it, it's important uh, for us to have God's Word, to know it, and to be living and saturating ourselves with it. And I just want to encourage that today. Uh, Anyway, so so we're in our study of Luke, where Luke has spent three chapters identifying Jesus, showing us who Jesus is. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man. But But knowing who Jesus is and knowing what Jesus had come to do is not the same as knowing that Jesus is actually capable of accomplishing it right? I mean, the first three chapters lay out for us exactly the mission, the purposes of Christ and his identity, but they don't show us that Jesus is actually able to accomplish it. So Amy and I, we just recently watched this movie called Everest. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a, it's a true story about a, a man named Rob Hall and this group of climbers that climb Mount Everest and, and, uh, one of the, one of the people on the climb and then one of the guides end up dying on this trip. It happened in 19, uh, two of the guides and one of the, people on the trip died it happened in 1996 and uh is it really an, it's not a feel good movie it's like we got done and i'm thinking i was i just looked at her i was like i i feel pretty bad right now this is then it didn't finish well uh anyway so so here's the thing though is this guy Rob Hall is his name he was known for mountain climbing now, like he was A successful, sought after guide. He was, he was, uh, he, he started really by, by completing him and a buddy completed the seven summits in seven months. And the seven summits are the seven highest mountains on the seven continents of the world. And he had gone in seven months and climbed all seven of those. Is that enough sevens for you? But he made a name for himself when he did that and after he did that he had corporate sponsors and so he started making money doing this and and he quickly uh, established a company called adventure consulting and adventure consulting is known for they still exist today they're no, they were known for their their uh their their reputation and their commitment to safety and 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 people wanted to climb mount everest with them with especially rob hall because of who he came to be known as he was sought after, so much so, in fact, people believed in him so much that they would pay well over the normal rate just to be able to climb with this man. It would cost him $65,000 to climb Mount Everest with him. I mean, that's, that must be a big goal in life, to be willing to, to drop that kind of cash to climb a mountain, right? I mean, it's, that's a big deal. But they believed in him so much, they, would be, they were willing to pay more to, to climb with him. They, they trusted that they were going to get to the top and actually get back down to the bottom. Unfortunate. The reality is, is he couldn't live up to the expectation. Eventually, not only did he die on that climb, but but a man that had gone with him that was trusting in him died on that climb. And here's the thing. The mountain that Jesus had to ascend makes Everest look like a, a molehill in an open prairie. Could he do it? Could he accomplish what he had set out to do? Could he, could he achieve the summit? Could he come to the top and, 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 and make this way back to the base of this mountain? Could he do what he'd been sent to do? And that's exactly what I think Luke is letting us know as he begins to move into the ministry of Christ. See the thing is, is I don't want to ruin the I don't want to ruin the surprise ending. I don't want to I don't want you to miss out on the irony. But could he? Yes, he absolutely could. Yes, he absolutely did. And we, and we see it. We see it begin to unfold in front of us as we as we come to Luke chapter 4 today as Jesus is facing temptation, as Jesus is 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 on, he faces the onslaught of temptation from the devil himself. We see him begin his work of overcoming, of, of finding victory against sin. Let's read with, read read along with me, if you will. Verse, verses one through 13. We'll read the whole thing. We'll come back and look at it. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those forty days. And when they, and when they were ended, he was hungry. That's like stating the obvious, right? Like, he was hungry after not eating for 40 days. I get, I get hungry after not eating a few hours. I think it's, but, but it, it, it's clear. He, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. So Satan, the devil, now turns the tables and he's like, Oh, you're using scripture on me, I'm going to use scripture on you. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This of course is a it's a familiar passage, probably not the first time you've heard of Jesus being tempted, probably not the first time you've even heard a sermon on Jesus being tempted in my experience it's been it's it's in most cases and just hear me this is my experience i don't know what sermons you have heard but in my experience most of the time when people look at this passage when they when they seek to expound this passage they first deal with that they, they most focus on the temptations and the ways that we're tempted and the things that the, the devil does to tempt us and, and 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 i don't think that's wrong i think it's good if we were if we were in a christian living series or if we were in a one time sermon and i was going to have to try to break this out and and show you what I think was most important, I think I probably would do the same thing. I'd focus on those those things. But we're studying the book of Luke, and we're seeing the book of Luke unfold in front of us, and we're understanding the Gospel as He presented it in an orderly account, seeking to to give certainty, to give confidence in our Savior. That's what He wrote for. And so I think it would be wrong for us to jump right into the temptation. So we're going to spend this week really focusing on why Luke did this. Why, why Luke saw, thought it was important to write this down, to record this event. We are going to deal with it again next week. We're going to look at the temptations. It's not that, not that I wouldn't want us to do that, but I think there's something we've got to deal with first. There's something I think we have to, <clears throat> have to understand first so i want us to really consider the significance of this event consider the significance of why luke placed it where he did in the gospel consider the significance of what he's trying to show us and how it helps us gain certainty i think i can summarize that in one statement it doesn't mean that the sermon's over and after i say this statement you go home we're going to break it out a little further but i think i can summarize this in one statement and i would say it like this something for you to have a a nail to hang your hat on something for you to 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 help guide our time together it would be be this jesus didn't come to make this life better jesus didn't just come to make this life better he came to overcome sin in order to make eternal life possible there's a lot to this but truly i mean if jesus had just come to heal people and relieve oppression, relieve the consequences of, of living in a sin-filled world, and, and ease the consequence of sin on our lives just for the time being, this never would have had to happen. And it wouldn't matter if it if it had. It wouldn't be important for us to know it today. If, if Jesus was just simply seeking to come and do a good work and and, and make people feel better about this life then it wouldn't matter whether or not he faced temptation well or not, whether he succeeded against temptation or not. <clears throat> There's something I say to people. I, I, I say this a lot as I talk with people about why we do what we do in the community. I, I have this conversation a number of times. I've had this conversation with a number of the people in the, in the Neighborhood Association that recently gave us an award, right? So, so they give us an award, and in part, as we've had relationship with them, I've had opportunity to talk to them about this a number of times i tell them all the time jesus everywhere jesus went he made it better everywhere jesus went he made it better there was a significant difference because jesus was there he made it better and I, i think that's true I think he went serving and, and healing and performing miraculous things and and, and and helping the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. And he, he did all of these social things that, that made life better. People knew Jesus was in the house when he was in the house. I mean, they knew when he'd come into a city and people would flock to see him and they'd bring sick people to be healed and, they'd bring, and they would bring deaf and, and lame and, and mute and blind and, and, they would, and, and they would bring people to him because they knew his reputation. And I shared with you just a couple of weeks ago how I long for our church to be known for this kind of thing. How I long for this group of people, this body of believers, this local congregation as we look to the future, as we look to what's coming, how we how we long for this, how, how I long and have prayed for this for, for 10 years, really. That as we seek to plant a new church this year, as we seek to spread out, maintaining unity in vision, unity in mission, unity in name, and, and unity in the gospel, maintaining unity in our purposes, as we seek to do that, I long that we spread out across the city and as we find opportunity, We strive to make it better. In fact, my my hope would be, let's let's just say worst case scenario, tomorrow something happens and shuts this church down. My hope would be that the community around us would feel it. Would sense it. Would recognize a void. Not because I want them to think of us as good people, but I want them to see Jesus. And so I encourage, I, I long for our people to do things like Mercy Ministries. I long for the day that we will one day be running and, and working together with, with, with medical clinics, after school programs, uh, uh, job training, and opportunity for homeless people, food pantries, ways that we are serving and blessing and just simply making Springfield better because Jesus is in us and in us, Jesus is in the city. I long for that. That's compelling to me. And it's compelling, I think, to people to call them to this, to, to this mission. But, but here's the thing. It's an incomplete picture of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. Here's, as we focus on these social issues and as we focus on social justice missions, sometimes to a fault, We miss it. We miss out on the fact that Jesus didn't just come to make this life better, but He came to make eternal life possible. If all we have is hope for this life, we are to be pitied among all people. That's what Paul says. If a deaf person is made to hear in this life, but dies and spends eternity in hell, how have we made them better? How have we improved their condition? You see, the thing is is that if we focus too heavily on the social justice portion and the following of Jesus as an example, we miss out on the fact that He is a Savior. Jesus was not just an example. He is, but He's not just an example. He, he is our Savior. But He could only save us if He Himself could overcome sin that is destroying us. A fireman can't save you if he's not able to go into a burning building and drag you out. Jesus couldn't come into this world to save us from sin if he wasn't able to live sinlessly himself. This event in the life of Christ is of utmost importance for him and for us. So after Jesus is baptized, right after the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form right after the father speaks from heaven and says you are my son with you i am pleased jesus is led by the spirit he's led by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and he eats nothing nothing is living praying depending on looking to seeking after the lord and depending on how you read the greek depending on how you perceive what's said there in this passage especially in verse 2 you can either determine that Jesus was being tempted the whole time that he was in the desert the whole 40 days or you can determine that that's one view and it's a it's a popular view and that culminates then in three temptations or that Jesus went into the wilderness fasted and prayed for 40 days to be to ultimately be tempted at the end as we see him tempted in these three ways but in either case in either way you approach it, in either way you look at it, you come to the same result. You come to the end of this passage and Jesus is victorious and Satan is leaving Him until an opportune time. Looking for another point of weakness. Looking for another opportunity to trip up the Savior. Looking for another chance to to lead Him into sin. But He won't fall. See so the, the reality is that where everyone else failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus was victorious. Maybe you can see this. I think you can see this most clearly in the context of the whole passage, and that's why this is why I wanted you to have your Bible out. We're we're not looking at simply for one through thirteen because it doesn't exist to itself. You, you look at it in terms of the whole whole. Context and what is going on around it, and why Luke places it where he does, and why he interjects the genealogy before he talks about the temptation that happened right after. Why did he put something in the middle? Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip over to chapter 3, 21 through 23. It may be on the same page, but look at 21 through 23. We get to the baptism. Here's the baptism. So so Jesus comes down, is baptized. He's, he's praying, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends, this is verse 22, Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But did you notice in chapter 4, how does Satan approach him? How does Satan tempt him? What, is, what does he say to him? If you're the son of God. God has just said it. He's just commended it from heaven, this heavenly voice, this supernatural moment. I don't know about you, but when I started preaching, when I first stepped into ministry, the heavens didn't open up and say, hey, this is Seth, listen to him. It would have been really cool if it had. And if God took my advice, it might have. But this happened with Jesus. And here Satan comes seeking to, seeking to undermine it, seeking to, to cause doubt in it, seeking to cause question with it. And It's, it's, it's crazy. It's this beautiful moment of, of the power of God in Christ, the power of God on Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being full of the Holy Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit, being completely obedient to God the Father, recognizing His identity as the Son, and Satan's like a rowboat going up against a battleship. I mean, he's in his little dinghy with his two little paddles, and he's going to sink the battleship. It's not going to happen. And so we, we see the limitation of Satan's power. We see the end of Satan's power. He can't accomplish his, his task. But we gain just a glimpse of the power of God in Christ. We don't even know how far his power would go. We don't, we we don't, we don't, we don't have any inkling of how far this extends. Because Satan couldn't even make a dent. Couldn't even cause a doubt. Couldn't drum up any desire. Because Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God in flesh look now at his genealogy i mean you can follow it through we we studied this a couple of we studied this last week and i pointed out to you as we as we walk through it i pointed out to you that that in sharing this genealogy luke connects jesus to every major covenant redemptive covenant of god throughout history he's in the line of david you can you can see it i think it's around verse Well, let me just get down there and I'll tell you what verse it is. It's in verse 31. He talks about that that, that Jesus is in the line of David. That's significant. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We talked about that last week. God would establish David's throne forever. But do you remember David's story? David was an adulterer. David was a liar. David was a murderer. I mean, he slept with a man's wife and then to cover it up commands his general to send the man into war so that he dies. David might have been a king for a time, but he was incapable and unworthy of being God's king forever. He's in the line of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant being the seed that would bless all nations. Do you remember Abraham's story? Abraham was, he said to be the father of our faith. He's said to be the one who is the father of our faith. And when we trust in Christ, we are grafted into his family. He's the one. And in him, much of the redemptive history of God begins to unfold through him. Much of the redemptive history that God is working out in time begins to unfold. But do you remember his story? He trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness, but that didn't always translate to his action. He's called to follow God to Canaan. He gets up and he leaves, but Canaan's, you know, experiencing a, dry, a famine. So he takes his family and all his people down to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, before he gets there, he even, he realizes, wait a minute, we're in danger. So, hey, Sarah, guess, you know, to protect me, you're going to have to say that you're my sister. And so they take Sarah and they're, they're going to have Sarah. He gives up his wife so that he can save his own skin. He's a selfish man. A lying man. Oh, but he gave, he gave his son Isaac. I mean, when it came down to it, right? He gave his son Isaac. God said, hey, bring him and sacrifice him. But that son of promise that he was willing to sacrifice... He was unwilling to wait on. God had promised that he would have a son, that he would have an heir, and he would be the line, the promised son, that through him all nations would be blessed. And Abraham's unwilling to wait. Sarah says, Hey, sleep with my servant. And he does. And they have a child. He's not the child of promise. And if you listen to the people that come from him now, they think they are. Muslims would trace themselves back to Ishmael. And they believe that theirs is the blessed line because he was the firstborn of Abraham. It's probably a little bit of oversimplification, but it's the truth. Abraham couldn't be the guy. He might have been the guy that God worked through, but he couldn't be the guy because he was a failure. He was a sinner, just like the rest of us, the nation of Israel. There's this, this huge typology, typology that's driv- driven through chapter four verses one through 13, where Jesus is in the wilderness 40 years, and it looks like the, the, the 40 or 40 days I'm sorry, and it looks like the 40 years that Israel is in the, the, the wilderness. But truly in the genealogy, we see that Jesus is in that line. He's of those people. God's chosen people to be a blessing to the world, to be a light. But do you remember their story? When called to go into the promised land, they doubted the God that had led them through the sea on dry ground. They failed. And as a result, they wander around in the desert for 40 years complaining and miserable the whole time. But maybe the, the, the crux, the climax of Luke's genealogy is the son of Adam. Verse 38, he comes to this point where he says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, speaking about Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus was in the line of Adam just like we all are. He was human. Fully man and fully God. Where Adam failed, Jesus won. You know Adam's story. I mean, he was formed of God from the dust. God bends over into the creation and breathes life into him. He places him to rule over all things in creation. He gives him a wife that's formed from his rib. And when tempted once, He chose the fruit instead of God. He couldn't be the guy. Jesus is in the line of Adam. He is the fulfillment of the Adamic covenant. But He is not the guy. Or that Adam is not the guy. He is he is the beginning and where all things went wrong and where God determined in the covenant that the curse would fall. But in the same breath as the curse came, came the promise of life. I appreciate the contrast between these two men. John MacArthur points it out this way. Listen closely. Let me just read it to you. Comparing Adam's temptation with that of Jesus reveals some obvious differences and makes Jesus' victory over his temptation all the more remarkable. Adam faced temptation in the best possible surroundings, the Garden of Eden. Jesus faced temptation in the worst imaginable setting, the wasteland of the Judean desert. Adam lived in sinless perfection of the pre-fallen world. Jesus lived in a sinful fallen world. No overwhelming buildup of temptation lured Adam into sin because he yielded to the first temptation he faced. Jesus, on the other hand, faced repeated temptations over the first 30 years of his life Hebrews 4.15 kind of gives gives us that insight. An intense temptation during the 40 days before the final three recorded here. John MacArthur's view is that Jesus was being tempted the whole time. Jesus was weakened by 40 days of fasting. in, in, In the best of circumstances, Adam fell. In the worst of imaginable circumstances, Jesus did not. The consequences of Adam's fault and temptation were lethal to the human race. The consequences of Jesus' triumph over temptation were life-giving. You see the contrast. You see why why Luke saw fit, why Luke saw that it was important to, to, to show that Jesus was baptized, that Jesus entered into ministry, that Jesus lived in obedience to the Father. He showed us his line, his genealogy, and then comes to this moment where he says, Jesus is better Jesus is victorious where everyone else has failed. Jesus, rather than serving Himself with His power to make bread from stones and feeding on His own desires, Jesus trusted His Father to sustain His life. Jesus, rather than taking a shortcut to achieve His crown by bypassing the cross, worshipped the Father alone. He did not exalt Himself in any way. Rather than proving His identity by commanding God the Father to act in order to protect Him, Jesus saw His position below the Father, submitted to the Father's authority, and lived in obedience to the Father. Unwilling to test God as if He was over God. In every way that we've been tempted, Jesus has been tempted. And in every way that we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Jesus is better. Sinclair Ferguson wrote in Preaching Christ from the Old Testament, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who through, who though innocently slain has blood Now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the world of void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son who you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. We are not crushed, but we may walk with a limp. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who... Struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Just hit me. I'm a stupid friend. A true and better Job. <laughs> Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly place but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. And you know how we know that? Because when faced with temptation, where we would have failed, He won victoriously. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is our hope for salvation. So I ask, maybe anticlimactically, why is this so important? 1 Corinthians 15-21 For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus didn't just come to make this life better. He came to make our eternal life possible. That is the thread that draws together every other thing that He did. Every other reason that can be said He came. He came ultimately for this Jesus is the better Adam. He did what Adam failed to do and accomplished for us what we are incapable of doing. Because this is true. Because this is true. We can trust Him. We can, we, we can lean into Him. We can rest in Him. We can give our $65,000 and even more to, to climb that mountain With Him. Because this is true, our repentance is fruitful. Trusting in Him, turning from our sin, our repentance actually accomplishes something because Jesus did it better. Because Jesus did it right. Our faults, because this is true, our faults can be forgiven. If Jesus hadn't faced this temptation and won victoriously, God would have no perfect sacrifice. God would have no atonement for our sin. And God Himself would be evil if He even attempted overlooking it. Because this is true, we can go and tell others about Him, calling them to trust Him too. You see, we have something substantial here. We have something meaningful. We have something powerful. We have something that's fruitful. We have something that matters. Our gospel proclamation is not empty words as we so often feel it is. Our, our gospel proclamation is not simply something that's to be set aside and, and let the preacher do it. It is the thing, it is the, it is the, is the power of God unto life. Because Jesus is perfect, because Jesus won victoriously. Not only can we trust Him, but we can teach our children to trust Him. We can talk to him about, to to our neighbors about him and call them to trust him, knowing that he is capable of doing for them what he has done for us. Because this is true, because this is true, we do have reason now to follow him, to follow his example, and to obey him. If it wasn't true, we might as well go home. Live your life to serve yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But because it's true, your efforts to make this life better accompanied with your proclamation of the Gospel, your trusting in Jesus, actually incarnates Him in front of the world so that people can see His work. So that they can see Him in you. Jesus is better. And because He is, we have work to do. We have reason to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son to pay our price, to cover our sin. to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus, thank You for never wavering, for standing strong on my behalf, on our behalf. Thank You for being my better Job that You might save this stupid friend. Thank you. Would you move in us? Spirit, move on us. Lead us now. Lead us. Fill us. Empower us. Equip us. Speak through us. Lead us into the desert. The wilderness. That is Springfield. That we might face temptation and, and by the power of you, by your power in us, that we might That we might actually live in righteousness, live in repentance, lead us. That we might make, that we might be used, really, of you to make Jesus known, to make him famous.